I think it's actually on. So I will go to this, and I, I could get it like this, or I could actually get it bigger. Only thing is, whenever I do this, now I have to do this. You guys know about this kind of stuff? Yeah. Oh. Do you have a so, little sign says technical difficulty? <laughs> Tony, you're going to be my technician starting next week. <laughs> That's your job. Put those signs in there. Well, you're Do you like that computer? <laughs> What's that? Do you like that computer? You don't have it for long. It works. And don't let Tony. It works. That's, that's, that's the point. Uh, you want to keep that computer? <laughs> so we want to keep it working then, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. It's uh, I'm not perfect as far as being the technician, but uh, I'd like to see a perfect church. Would you guys like to see a perfect church? Oh, amen. No. Wouldn't that be great to see a perfect church? <laughs> What does a perfect church look like? We'd have to leave. <laughs> does a perfect church really exist? Well, I believe when people look for a church to attend, they're often looking for a church that has no faults, no spots, no wrinkles, just perfect the way that they would think. That would be perfect. And you know what? If they do find it, as soon as they join that church, that church is no longer perfect, as you were saying. The thing is, is that it's very elusive. There's no such thing as a perfect church in the sense that we're thinking of. And that it's going to be exactly the way that uh, I want it or the way that the Bible should be. Uh, cannot be perfect in this world as we know it because who fills the churches? It's sinners saved by grace, and we know that the church has always been called a hospital for sinners, the sick and the needy, right? That's who needs the church. Well, one day we will be sinners made perfect, as it says in Hebrews. There are sinners that are made perfect, the ones who died in Christ, and they're now there with him, sinners made perfect. So when we go to heaven, we will be perfect. And then the church that called out assembly will be perfect as they gather there. We're in a process today, aren't we? It's called sanctification individually and as a church collectively. What would a close to perfect church look like? As close as you can get, yet still yet not be perfect, we might have an example that we're going to look at today, a model church called Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia. This is about a close, as we can look at, the way that it should be and that that church was faithful, it was obedient, it was a loyal church. Quite refreshing to look at that as we have looked at churches in the last few weeks in Revelation 3 that dealt with a compromising church. That was Pergamum. Thyatira was a corrupt church. And then last week we looked at, even worse, the dead church at Smyrna. Now we jump from a dead church 
to a really alive church called the Church at Philadelphia. It was not compromising. It was not corrupt. And it certainly wasn't dead. It was much alive as a matter of fact. And this is what we're going to look at today, the Church of Philadelphia. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Your Word today, look at Your truth. It's coming from You, Lord. You wrote this through John. By the Holy Spirit, we get to read and understand the very thoughts of You, Almighty God. What a privilege we have to peer into this every week, every day of our lives. We have Your Word, which is so precious with us. Lord, bless us as it goes out today that we too could be a model of a faithful, obedient, and loyal church that gives glory to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Stand for a moment as you pick up your Bibles, picking it up in chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can be seated. This is the sixth church we've looked at. We're pretty well through the churches dominating this section on chapter 2 and chapter 3 is about seven churches. They can kind of represent certain ages as many commentators say. I don't want to stress it too much. Taking it too much liberty but like starting at Ephesus and then going all the way through the, the seven churches you get different ages that go through that time period. And of course, this church has been, I think, uh, taken as the church during the Reformation. Come from a very dead time and a very corrupt time. Out came the Reformation. The church was strong then. Of course, it sent out missionaries. What an open door there was. In the 1700s and 1800s, we think of the great missionaries. They stemmed off of that reformed theology movement. 
Well, uh, here we are today in 2000, and there's still Philadelphia churches here. There's still faithful churches, aren't they? There are also corrupt churches, compromising churches. So in that sense, we can see it too. All through any kind of age, whatever period you are, you could have any of those seven churches being represented in that way. We definitely take it literally, and that's where we really start at. We know that we're safe with that. But we can extend those out and say, these things apply to us even individually, don't they? So, here we are. Uh, Same outline as before, except this time there are no condemnations to this church in Philadelphia. Commendation, but no condemnation. There was only one other church that we've seen like that. So there's two out of the seven that get no condemnation. But individuals who are in Christ take also Romans 8 where it says, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you're really truly in Christ, you are never condemned anymore. It's good to know that. But there are judgments in the sense and warnings and consequences of our sin here. So, to the angel of the church, same outline as before where we said, here's the address to the angel of the church. There's the angel, the messenger. The city of Philadelphia, or the church in the city of Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia means brotherly love. Phila, which is a love, fondness, affection, and Delphos, or Delphia, is brother. Brotherly love. Now I can't... You know what I'm going to say next. We happen to be at a time that is ironic. This was, I think, the most controversial issue of our day right now here in the time that we live at this moment is the deal with the elections and the corruption. We all know that it's been going on and in many, many cities, many, many places where there was voting, corruption done. But Philadelphia right now is right at the heartbeat of it all. And they've done this for years and years. We know about the corruption in the, the counting of votes there. And they make it sway to make it work for them. Of all places, the city of brotherly love, and it's exactly the opposite. Because they would they don't even let anybody in to come in and check what they are doing. I mean, it is incredible the the time that we live in and that's what it is. So, um, really, the city of Philadelphia, it's it's hard to say that today now and knowing what it is. But this uh, Philadelphia was called brotherly love because there was a king uh, who had set this city up for his, actually, his brother. So it was a brotherly love. He got this city started. And it was really fitting for the church there, isn't it? Brotherly love. Don't you imagine they had great love in that church? No doubt at all. So it was very fitting to have that name, the church at Philadelphia. It was known as a very rich city. It was a city of grapes, had great grape growth. Grapes just flourished in the setting all around the city of Philadelphia. And it was known because of the location. Where it was put at was meant to be 
by the one who started it because it becomes a gateway to the east, from the west to the east. And it's kind of called that. And it's a strategic missionary kind of city. And you say missionaries. Well, no, it wasn't started by the church. It was started by Greek people. The Greeks wanted to propagate the Greek culture, the customs, the manners, the language. They really wanted to have that spread out all over the world, which basically it did. For some time, the, uh, the Gentiles wanted the, the Greek philosophy and the Greek wisdom and to be known far and wide, and it would be propagating right out of Philadelphia. And one of the reasons for that is because it was on the main route of a postal service. It went right through there, from Rome in the west, straight to the city of Philadelphia, it would go through. That's a major route. You see, they wouldn't be able to go through every little highway and byway, but they would take major places, and so Philadelphia serves a major importance. A Roman army would march across and through this area and through Philadelphia. That would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, wherever they were going in the empire, they might just pass right through there. There would be traveling caravans, and you would have businessmen, business merchants going through Philadelphia. Quite a city. A rich city. An important city. Brotherly love. And so is this church that is an important church. So we can understand why God and His Word and, and why Jesus says here in His message that uh, He speaks of opening the door. An open door. It's an opportunity to propagate the gospel. Because if you've got a highway, a major postal service route going through there, this is major to be able to get to people who need the gospel. So that's why that is even probably mentioned in there. I would say that's a good reason. That is the first part of verse 7. Now, the second part of this verse is the characteristics of Christ. This is what we've been seeing all the way through to, this, to the city, to the church in that city, and then to... It's coming from Christ. And it, there are descriptions here. Characteristics. And he says, uh, He who is holy, who is true. So he's holy. He's true. He has the key of David. Who opens the door no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. So that's quite significant. I, uh, you know... I take these as like almost like clues. Who is this, right? It's almost like Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Hmm. Who is this? Anyway, in Isaiah 43.3, as Jesus says right here, He who is holy. Jesus is holy, isn't it? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 43, verse 3. I am the Lord, thy God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So there it says, I am, which is the self-existent one, 
the Lord, which is Yahweh, which is the very name of God, which also means the self-existent one, the eternal one, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Well, who is this? First of all, it's God. It's Yahweh. But there are three persons in the Godhead and it not only means God the Father, but it also means God the Son. He is your Holy One, your Savior. God saves through the person of Christ. So usually in the Old Testament you think, the Holy One, who is it? Well, it's God. But it's also Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah, the Holy One. Now we turn to chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 10. It says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This would be speaking of the Lamb in verse 9. He breaks the fifth seal. And there we have saints who've been martyred and they're crying out, O Lord, holy and true, how long this be? How long will this continue? It's a designation of God, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. The three holies represent the Trinity, doesn't it? This is given to the Almighty Lord. It's Christ here. It's a reason for us to be holy. Be ye holy for I am holy. So he not only is saying that he's holy, but he is encouraging them to continue in their holiness. This church at Thyatira, Philadelphia, runs together after a while. I might run through them all just like I am. Whenever I have sons, I run through all my sons' names. All two of them. But then I had my grandsons with it, and then the next thing you know, I had four going through there. I do that. You guys do that? Yeah. Zach, you're still in your 30s, I know. <laughs> but you've got a lot more kids than I do. Do you have that problem sometimes? Y'all didn't mind that he's shaking his head. <laughs> Wait, do you get older and it gets worse? <laughs> anyway, he says, Holy. That's a good way to start it out. Matter of fact, that is the whole idea of who God is. He is holy. Everything comes from that. All of His attributes. His attributes are holy, pure, perfect, separate. So He reveals Himself as holy and as true here in Revelation 3. We're getting a picture of Christ. He's holy, He's true. There are two Greek words for that could be used for this. The word that is used here is to to be true means to be in contrast to that which is imitation, which is false. So you compare two, one is true, the other one is fake. That's the idea. He is the true and living Christ. He is the truth, isn't he? I am the way, the truth. He's not a copy. He is the true one. So Philadelphia here is being encouraged by Christ to reflect the true characteristic of 
Christ. So, And I think that goes all the way through the church at any time. He's always holy to us. He's always true. Aren't we glad in the days that we live in that we can actually have somebody we can believe everything. Everything. Truth is linked with what? Holiness. You can't have one or the other without the other, right? I mean, they combine with each other. Truth and holiness. Holiness and truth. They're linked together. You can have true doctrine, but you must also have true holiness. Living that out. It's more than a morality. Holiness is, isn't it? Holiness is much more than a morality. To, to live holy lives is fine, but how is holy measured? By the truth of God. That So, uh, one can be moral, or at least say they are, and yet at the same time, really not have a true holiness because it's not based on real truth. Or to have truth and then not living it out, as we might say. So, Philadelphians had their difficulties like all the other churches there in Asia Minor. They needed to grasp this. He's holy. He's true. They needed to look to Christ to be encouraged to continue to be holy, to continue to be true, to be faithful, to live holy lives, to have genuine holy lives. That's why Christ revealed Himself here as holy and true. It encourages them. Who has the key of David. That's interesting. Key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. And no one's going to shut that. And who shuts and no one will open it. Total control over these doors. He has the keys to this. Well, I'll tell you what. Um... We know he has the keys of Hades, death and hell. He's already mentioned that in chapter 118. But let's get to the key of David. How can we understand this a little further? Go to chapter 22 of Isaiah. Chapter 22, verse 22. 22, 22. That's a gun, isn't it? This is a real 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. We'll get to that in a moment. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Does that sound like our Revelation passage? You see, the best way to read the Word of God is to find other passages that support it and say the same thing. And that is why the Word, one reason why the Word of God is the Word of God. It never uh, is contradictory to itself. It may look that way to people, but it's never contradictory. It only supports itself. Here, it's like a quote that comes from there. You can say, I'll set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Well, we'd say that's the Messiah, and that is true. But also, it's somebody else. Uh, it's a, this one is a type of the Messiah. If you go back to verse 20, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, 
and I will close him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Here you have David. David as a servant, Eliakim. Eliakim is trusted by David to get the key, the key of David. For one thing, he will let or admit people into the presence of the king. Not just anybody can go into the king's presence. They just can't walk up there and go to the king. That's never happened, does it? Well, it didn't happen to even David. He had somebody out there that admitted people. Uh, so that they would open the door to let them in. And he would also deny people's entrance into the presence of David. For whatever reason, he could shut the door. He had the authority to do this. He had the key of David. He had the key, the actual literal key to the actual treasury of the actual King David. So when he says, I have the key of David. Jesus is saying that, but He's relating to this. And really the total fulfillment is that is Jesus. And He is the fulfillment of King David. And He's saying, I have the key to admit people into the kingdom. I also have the authority to shut the door when I so desire. I will admit who I admit and I will stop who I will stop. I have the key of David. Now, does that make sense? I think that's pretty cool when you look back in Isaiah here. And it's speaking of David, but ultimately, it's really speaking of the Messiah, really. But there was an Eliakim, and that's what happened. And that's why, you know, you take Old Testament, then you see it fulfilled completely in the New Testament. But a lot of things were fulfilled right there at that time with those people. Now this was like 300 years after it already happened, after the fact of the matter. By the way, I have a, a title here to chapter 22 of Isaiah and it's called The Valley of Vision. Now that is one of the most incredible books that's ever been written in the church's time outside of the Bible. It's, I'm not saying it's the top, but it's right up there. It's prayers of Reformation saints who had tremendous prayers. And we used to have those prayers. We'd either have them read or we actually had a CD and we'd, we'd play it with a, a guy with a, a British accent that really had an impact, you know. But uh, that's, that's called the Valley of Vision. It's an oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. So that would be a good one to read today if you don't have anything to do later in the afternoon or tonight. Read that through and I think you'll catch what's happening. So it goes beyond David. It goes to the Messiah. The key of David. Service. Testimony here. Administrative power. Incontestable control. The key to everything. He can open it. He can shut it. I like 1 Corinthians 16.9 where Paul constantly prayed for an open door. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, that's in verse 8, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me 
And there are many adversaries. <laughs> oh, I love that. Because it's saying, I'm going to stay here. Now. And he did. Paul, I think, was in Ephesus for it was three years. Quite the time. Boy, established a church there. And they were doctrinally true in purity. It with purity for so long. They loved the Lord. We know that they eventually left their first love. But here he says, I want a wide door for effective service. And it came open. I can't leave now. Because there is many adversaries. That, many adversaries. Well, shouldn't you go, Paul? You need to get out of there. The adversary. No. That's when you stand and fight. We got some adversaries in this country today that hate this country and they are haters of people. You know who they are. They hate people. And it gets worse and worse as it goes. We have adversaries. You know what? We have a door open to us. Because we have the gospel and let the people come. Let the door open. Let's move out in past the doors into effective service, right? There are people who need the gospel. Most probably don't want it. There are some that really need it and they will want it. So the, I like that 1 Corinthians 16.9. How about Colossians 4.3? Door open for service. That's what we want. Verse 3. Praying for the same time for us as well. Praying about what? That God will open to us a door for the word. Why? So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may speak it clear in the way I ought to speak. That's a prayer, isn't it? That's inspired prayer. That's great prayer. It's a prayer for Paul. This is a prayer it should be for us, shouldn't it? Yeah. Pray that a door would open. You could get through to people that you never had been able to get through before. That boom, all of a sudden it would open wide open. And it may take adversaries for that door to come open though. Maybe some people will listen when they see what is happening. That could be, could be, or even if it works the way that we want, that door might be open there that people would say, a miracle has happened. Tell them why. Okay, that gets us to number three. I remembered to do it. It's pretty amazing in there. This is about the commendation of the church. No condemnation after this. Memory always starts with a commendation for all the churches. Isn't that a gracious, merciful God? Well, He won't be condemning them. But he certainly will commend them highly here in verse 8 through 10. That's right. 8 through 10. Usually you see one verse. So we have read up through 7, right? Read here, verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold... I know what you guys have done. Now the last church, he said, I know your deeds. And then boom, he blasts them. Here he says, I know your deeds. Behold, 
I have put before you an open door. He's just called himself like an open door or having the key of David, right? Which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then he says this again. Behold! I mean, we're talking explanation point. We're talking, wow, check this out. Right? I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews. These are the adversaries, folks. And are not, but lie. (laughs) The liars. But I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Why? Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Wow, that's a long commendation. They have an open door of ministry. They worked seriously. They reached the lost and in, but proclaiming the gospel, you know what we do? We open the door for them to go into the kingdom of God. We have the keys too. Because we have Christ, we have His Word, we also have the power and the authority to open the door. And to proclaim, if they don't believe, we have the power to shut. And that's, being, that's not saying we're going to put the wrath of God on them. No, 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 not at all. It's just going to say that if you don't believe that, the door is shut to you. Now, they have the rest of their lives, possibly. They might come to the truth later on, but it's like that is what is meant whenever Jesus gave that to the apostles, that authority to open the door and close the door. Because if you remain in your sins, you will die and you will be under the wrath of God forever. That is shutting the door. God will do that ultimately and finally. But... We need to do this also in recognizing that the doors that we have, when we have a door, take it. Recognize it. Open it up. Open more doors. Keep praying that. That doors would be open for us. Uh, Praying, I think, is the key that people won't just wander into our meetings but that we would have an open door to go out. Warren Wiersbe said this, the church that doesn't reach out will pass out. (laughs) That's pretty good, isn't it? Kind of like that dead church that we looked at last week. Reach out or you'll pass it, you'll die. Well, he says this now after saying, I know your deeds, behold, I put before you. You have an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power You have a little power. Why didn't he say, you have much power. You have Holy Spirit power. Well, they do. But he's saying this, I think, for a reason. They have a little power. You know, a little power of Christ is more powerful than any TNT, any dynamite, any kind of bombs that you could put together and to blow away this whole world. I mean, it's more powerful than that. A little power. The power of God. They, you know, they had enough power to be obedient to the Lord. 
they had enough power to desire to take His Word out. They had enough power not to ever deny His name. And it was unpopular to proclaim the name of Christ at that time. (laughs) It always has been. It's never been popular, really. And when it was, that's whenever the church was at its darkest for a thousand years. Made it legal in such a way, but it was so watered down. The Word of God wasn't even proclaimed during that time. You're all Christians now. So, the strength. What does it say about the strength we have? This is a lot. We have a little strength. Can you believe that? Do you have a little strength? Well, I was trying to move this wood stove last night with my son. <laughs> this thing is not very big. It's about like this, and about this high. And this thing was nothing but steel and metal and it was I mean it was like you know tons might have been and he said can you get that other side and I said I don't know about that and I reached down I go I said no I can't and that's whenever he yelled for his younger son and we had uh, a little bit of help to to move that but uh, I I felt like I did have uh, no strength at that time but I had a little bit Enough to be able to, to help, that's one theory. They were little in number at the Philadelphia church. I read some different commentators on this, and I'll tell you what, it just gave me all sorts of encouragement this week when I read that, and I said, I'm going to share this with you guys. Christ is commending this Philadelphia church. They're little in numbers. Where did we ever get the idea that bigger is better? Have you seen a lot of big churches? And you say, I would never set foot in there because I know they don't preach the Word of God. First of all, I know what their denomination stands for. They're liberal. Why would I even bother to go in there? It would be a waste of time. But they're big. There must be some kind of... They've been around for a long time. Huge church. Some churches start up, and I mean within two weeks, they already have 250 people. I'm going, Wow. <laughs> 35 years here, and the most we ever had was maybe 50 at one time. In our house. Figure that in a small little house. In a basement. You say, what happened to them? Well, they all kind of moved on. Hopefully, actually quite a few of them took the Word of God. Some of them are preaching in churches too. Um, and we praise God. That God did that. I'm not bragging. It's His work. He did it. And I'm going... You know, we've been a little bitty church, but there have been people that have gone out, and even if just one went out and did it, and and what they're doing, and they're preaching truth, and they've gone through their times, believe me. But I will tell you that the world is what tells us that bigger is better, and I like numbers. I I don't have any problem with numbers. There are strength in numbers. There's things you can do in a big church you can't do in a small church. But let's turn that around. There's a lot of things you can do to small church that you can't do in big church. By the way, we all know each other and we know each other very well, don't we? In the big churches, there are people that have never seen their brothers and sisters in that church. They go at different hours or they're in such a big group that they've never seen their face or they don't even know their name. 
they hear the message, they go out, boom, that's it. And they never even have shaken hands. They don't know each other. Neither here nor there, I guess, really. But, you know, Jesus came and how many followers did He really have as far as making disciples? Twelve. Not 12,000. Not 120,000. Twelve. So he had, and they were chickens. <laughs> you know, when he died, they all ran. How in the world did the church ever continue after that? They had a little strength. That's really all we have. When we are weak, he is strong. I think there's a challenge that could be coming up someday. Could be coming up in the next few months, could be in the next few years could be decades. don't know. I really don't. I don't care. I'm just saying that the challenge is this. We may not be able to meet in a particular place that we always have before because it might be illegal. What do you do? Well, you look at some of the churches and pastors of the ages where they couldn't meet and Buildings or homes. They met wherever they could. Caves, dens, out in the woods, underneath the trees. Not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that has happened. And even during after the Reformation, they were preaching the word too strong and they wanted to reform it. And uh, no way. England started castigating the pastors, the ones who that were preaching from the Bible, preaching verse by verse, word by word, preaching truth, and what happened to them? Well, they were rounded up, and many of them were caught, hundreds and hundreds of them, put in prison, persecuted, martyred, but the truth kept marching. Of course, those guys, we, we think of the Puritans. The Puritans really are the ones responsible for what we know as this nation today. God bless them. By the way, next week, that's what we're going to do. Because there's quite a few of us, maybe not here today, but hopefully they'll be here next week. A few of us probably haven't even heard of the truth of that, maybe know a little bit. I've done this down through the years every once in a while, and so... Maybe give some history and give some things that we haven't even heard of or, or talked about or thought of and bring that forth to show how God worked in His providence of bringing a group of people here who were, who were biblical. Many of them, half of them died coming here immediately. And the thing is, they carried on. How did they stay together? How did they make a nation that was based on God's truth? So we'll be looking at that next week because it's Thanksgiving. So, Jesus had His twelve. spread from there. We know that He had many followers within all that. But no matter what size we are, no matter how many people, no matter how many people will leave, like Philadelphia, I think, I would like to say that we have held to the truth. If, if not, I would want it to be pointed out. I think we've been faithful to holding to the truth. 
Maybe not as good as Philadelphia, but I think we've held to the truth. Whether we get the crowds or not, most of all, we hold to the truth. We ought to practice it. We believe it. No matter the consequences. So, we, like Philadelphia, want to hold to the truth. It says here they kept His Word. They didn't deny His name where they could have denied His name. And then it says, The Jews will bow down. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. Have we heard of that before? Well, where the truth is, the enemy always is too. Paul saw the door that was open and the effective ministry that had been there. And he saw the door open and he says, and there are many adversaries there. But Satan does not like the Word of God to be preached. People will run from it. People will deny it. People will attack it. Always have. They always will until Christ comes and reigns victorious. Synagogue of Satan. It's been mentioned before in chapter 2, verse 9. It was the Smyrna church. That was a good church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Many Jews were in Smyrna. They had a synagogue. Who do you think they went after? They went after the Christians who were made up of Jews. Jews had converted from that little town, a little city. Same thing here. Synagogue of Satan. They have synagogue, the Jews do. They say they're Jews, but they're really not. Outwardly, yes, they were born from the seed of Abraham in a physical way. Spiritually, they were never born again. They have not trusted as Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah. They are outward Jews. And that's it. They had a synagogue, synagogue of Satan. And matter of fact, there were actual Judaizers that would try to impose upon the Gentiles the Jewish rituals. Now these are people who confessed to be Christians, who were Jews, and they kept all the rituals and the ceremonies, and they said, these Gentiles, you also have to do the same thing that we do. Well, there was a church council of that in Acts chapter 15, and it said, no, they don't. No, not at all. You're saved by Jesus Christ, and those rituals were just pictures anyway. That's not a big deal. So, uh, we have this idea of the synagogue of Satan, this little church at Philadelphia. You know, um, there's going to be Jews who are going to get converted someday. And here, I think, may well be kind of what the meaning is that some of those Jews of the synagogue 
who were going to get converted come down the road to this little church in Philadelphia where they're meeting at a house and they fall at the feet of Christ and acknowledge in the presence of the Christians there in Philadelphia church that God was among them. That Christ was among them. I don't think that we're talking about that the Jews are going to worship Christians, but they will fall down because of the gospel that they've been given and they will fall down and worship Christ. They're representing Christ. He says, one day, here's what's going to behold. Check this out. Examine this. Listen to this. This is great. That's the idea of behold. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, their very enemies, their very adversaries, who will say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. These are my people. And then they come to Christ. Or it could be one day we know every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Does that mean everybody's going to be a Christian then? No, not at all. So when you say even people who say they don't even believe in God will come and confess Christ, they will then be put into eternal wrath, hell. So, but I like to think this would be people that would be coming into the church that finally believe the gospel. Behold. You know what? There sure could be, you know what I'm leading this to, do I have to say it? Could be a lot of people who hate us. And that's okay. Because they really don't hate us. They can say all the words that they want about us. You deplorables. <laughs> they can say that. But really they're saying it to God. But some of them will probably come to Christ. If so, God has elected. And I can see that happening because that's the way that God works. Because we too were like them. Sinners. That's really what it comes down to. See, all these seven churches, they saw a lot of persecution. doesn't really say it here in Philadelphia. Not did at Smyrna, didn't it? The good church there. Faithful church there. And you know, it's like this is encouraging. That this is what's going to happen. They're going to come into your assembly and praise God. Confess Christ. They kept the word of His perseverance. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I like that. You have kept my word of patience. Perseverance. What's that mean? That means they effectively took the position of Christ. Christ persevered through all of the tests that He was given. Well, the kingdom of God doesn't exist today in an outward power, does it? The one world wants all the power with one man leading. That is outwardly seen or can be seen. We'll see that in Scripture. But the thing is, there's a kingdom that we are a part of right now. 
Nobody sees it. They don't get it. It's just like the bride has the, the gown, has the veil, and they don't see the bride. We have truth. What a blessing. We keep the word of His patience or perseverance. It's in tribulation throughout all of its years. The church has gone through so much, but the kingdom of God is in man's hearts. A time of patience it is to be. It's a time of working. It's a time of patience. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of watching. Watch. Wait. Soon, He'll be here. But you keep on just plodding through. That's what the Puritans used to say that have in their writings. They would just plod along. It's almost like Seems like you'll never get there. Seems like nothing's happening. But you know what is to be true and is true and you just keep plodding along. Patiently, persevering, like Christ, enduring, waiting, watching. And he says this, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also, look at this, will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Kept from the hour of testing. Tereo ek. Tereo ek. 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 Ex. Exit. Out. Out of. You know what he's saying? You've passed all the tests. There's a final test coming. You don't have to take it. Because you did so well in all your tests. You've already shown you. You've known it. The teacher or professor says, you're completed. You've finished what you did. There's no test for you in the final. Have you ever had that happen? Some have. I think actually it kind of happened to me in college. Strangest thing. Um, first day, teacher introduced who was, what the class was about. Well, had a book says, you have your books. You read them. And at the end of the semester, come back. And you will have your final. Are you kidding me? That was my class. I paid money for that. <laughs> Some of you are probably familiar with Lincoln. Uh, that actually happened a couple times. I went to the final, and you know what? I was ready to take the test. I thought, but there's really no test. <laughs> it was like I showed up, and it was really... Uh, here is what you have learned this year. And nobody really got the final test. Now that was not a, probably a good example of this, but I didn't have to take the final. But I read through that whole time because I wanted to be ready 
because I didn't know what was going to be on there. They just said, read the book. I read the book. And there it was. There was no final. There was no final. Um, I was kind of kept out of that final testing, the hour of testing. Um, I'm going to spare you the future test, is what Christ is saying. You know, I've spared you, Philadelphia, from some trouble that you have. And it might be that maybe they would have some kind of trouble, persecution, or maybe uh, volcanoes blowing, earthquakes were known in that city of Philadelphia and people ran. They had to flee the city. Happened more than one occasion. Happened frequently. So, he could be saying that, and I believe he could be, you know, definitely, but I think it expands further out. I think it expands for all the churches for 2,000 years. And I think it expands all the way Till just before Christ comes, when wrath is released upon this world. So, you know, we really have tribulation that we live in this world, but are we ever going to have wrath? No. We've been removed from that wrath. We've been kept out of that wrath. Ek. So it could have had some brief historical sense that did happen there. I don't know. I do know that it's saying also that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The world, the earth. Sometimes you have to be careful when it says the whole world, you know. I Meaning it could be everybody, but the idea is it looks like this thing goes in a worldwide sense. The earth and the people who dwell in it. Um... I definitely think that it applies to Philadelphia there. I definitely think it applies to any kind of persecutions that the church has. Individuals that they go through. But I think it can go far into the future of Philadelphia. They were faithful. They don't have the final test. Great tribulation. Or the time of Jacob's trouble that's found in Jeremiah or the 70th week of Daniel, found in the Old Testament there, Daniel. Revelation 6 through 19 speaks of a time that has never been or ever will be, as was Jacob's trouble mentioned. And throughout Old Testament prophecy, we get a time period before the Messiah comes back that there will be a tremendous tribulation that will happen on this earth I'll keep you from the hour. I will keep you out of the hour. Some people say, I will keep you through that hour. Dia is the word for that. Dia, through. We even used that, that uh, three-letter word there uh, in even our English language. But this is ek, out of the tribulation. I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to try those who dwell upon the earth. The earth dwellers. Who are they? Well, it isn't for the church. Because they will not get the wrath of God. The church will never get the wrath. This is for unbelieving Jews, 
for unbelieving Gentiles. Speaking of wrath, and it can cover any time, but look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He rescues us. Christ will come back. And there's a rescuing there. And we know that ultimately, that's everybody in a, in a sense, but yet it is only for His believers, right? That would be the everybody there. But it's after Christ, when Christ comes back. You know, we're waiting. We're between the cross and the horse. That great white horse, Christ coming back. That's the time that we live in. 2,000 years there in that gap. So in that time, we, we carry it on. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. It says here, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Be encouraged by that, folks. And that really means, I think that's the ultimate sense of it all, but it also can be, you know, this, we will obtain salvation, we will not have wrath. Those who dwell upon the earth, dwell is not the word uh, just to dwell, for those who dwell, but it, it means to settle down in this earth. To be comfortable with this earth, this world. These are people who do not have the nature of the church. All who dwell on the earth. We, we see that in our Revelation passage there, right? In chapter 3. Look at Revelation 13, 8. 13, 8. What does this say? All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. This is Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Oh, we heard that before, haven't we? Chapter, what was that? Who was that to? The ones who dwell on the earth. 13.12 What do you have in 12? He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Those who dwell on the earth. Verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. The beast and the false prophet. How about chapter 14? Did we look at verse 6? And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So there's difference here. Those who dwell in heaven and those who dwell on earth. 
most of the people at this time, this tribulation, are going to be <clears throat> the believers, the church. What happened to them? Hmm. Heaven? Chapter 17, verse 2. Talk about the seven angels, seven bowls. Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Those who dwell on the earth. Are we seeing repetition all throughout John's revelation here? Those who dwell on the earth. These are the ungodly. They are unregenerate. Matter of fact, it will even be churches that are unregenerate. People that have don't that do not have believers in them. Because they're not a believing church, they don't have the word of God. They're an unregenerate church that will go into the tribulation. The uh, regenerate church will be kept from it, out of it. Now we go to point number four, which is the exhortation to the church. This is something that they need to take note of. No condemnation here, remember. But this, this is a positive statement. In verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that which you have so that no one will take your crown. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Christ is coming quickly. And you know what? That was said like 1900 years ago. Jesus said that He would be coming. Wait, watch. Could be any time. Wait, watch. I'll be there. In Revelation, He says, I'm coming quickly. When, Lord? You can do it now. It could be. Could be. Any time, right? Coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. That means remain true. Remain holy. Remain faithful. Remain obedient. And so I'm getting tired of it because it's not, it's not really proven out. I don't see anything. That's the point of what was that song we sang? Walk by faith. Faith means you don't see. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We would so often love to see things. Wouldn't we? Just give me one view here, Lord. He says, keep believing me. That's the whole idea of Christianity, isn't it? Just believe. When you have faith, you're believing of something and you're confident, great hope, that you know it's going to happen. Well, he says that you don't lose your crown. Hold fast. That you don't lose your crown. Now there is the crown of eternal life, and that's for all believers in those particular crowns, but there's a crown where if you remain faithful and you stay true all the way, you will be rewarded. There are degrees of the rewards that God will give us. Did you know that? God will reward us. And that doesn't mean you're going to be lacking things in heaven. But there's going to be more. It's going to be a more capacity to serve the Lord. The more you serve Him, the bigger capacity that you have to serve Him and understand who He is. That would be the idea of the crown. It's not talking about losing salvation, is it? But it's talking about what you have. You hold on to that. He will reward that. He's a good God. He, he wants to reward us. And then he says in verse 12 now here, I think we get to uh, the promise to the church. 
He who overcomes. Who's that? <laughs> We've seen this in every one of these. It's the, in verse John, what does it say? Here's the overcomer, the one who believes. <clears throat> believes that Christ sacrificed Himself on the cross for our sins. We trust in Him. That's how we overcome. We have faith in Him. We overcome. We can overcome. We've been overcoming for a long time. We are overwhelmingly conquering. It says in Romans 8. Did you know that you're more than conquerors? Overwhelmingly conquerors? I don't feel like it. But you are. I don't care what you say. You are. You are that. When you're a believer, you're an overcomer. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Oh, I love that. Did you know you are a pillar in the temple? Pillars of Grace. There's a book called Pillars of Grace. Steve Lawson talks about all the ones who proclaimed the truth of the Word of God. They proclaimed the sovereign God. They proclaimed sovereign grace. They proclaimed that He had His own that He chose before the foundation of the world and that they persevered. And these are mighty pillars in the church who stood for truth Proclaimed it. Many of them died because of it. The overcomer will be a pillar in the inner sanctuary of God. That must have been meaningful to these people. Because you know what happened in Philadelphia a lot? They had a lot lot of earthquakes. They would see buildings, great buildings standing, and they just go down. Nothing left, just a rumble mess. They would have no need to go out of this heavenly city because they are the pillars of this. They would often have to flee Philadelphia because of the earthquakes. No earthquakes can destroy anything in heaven. You know what? Faithful people are pillars. They're faithful in the sanctuary of God. They're strong They're honorable. They are permanent. They are unmovable. Is that what you think of when you think of pillars in front of a building? You think of the great, you know, like whether it be a Capitol building, a Supreme Court. You know, they had that those constructed in the Roman Empire. They had Philadelphia there. It's big columns, pillars, unmovable, strong. Right? You're like a pillar. That's what you are. You guys are pillars. I never thought of myself that way. That's what you are. Think about it. See the encouragement that He's given? If you're a Christian, be a pillar, right? And He will not go out from it anymore. Uh, They will not run. And I will write on Him the name of my God. I'll write on Him the name of my God. You know, that could be contrasted to the mark of the beast that is written in all who people, all the people who will take the mark because they can't buy or sell. They get to a point where they could have no food. So there's nothing else left than to take that mark. They take it. You say, Boy, I get to the point of hunger, I don't know what can happen. If I'm in that time period, what happens? Well, let's say if you are in that time period, God will make sure that you do not take it. Even if you're getting weak and you're thinking, you will not. You're not going to take it. 
Antichrist or Satan's name. You already have the name of God written on you, however that may be. And if you know some believe that we're going to be taken totally out of the tribulation, you won't have to worry about taking that mark. But I'll tell you what, I think before that time period, if that be the case, we're going to see a lot of rumbling that we've never seen before. If that be the case, it might be very hard to live here. How do we get food? How do we get water? If we're in our homes all the time. Just put a little reality there. Not scaring us. The reason I say all this is because we don't have anything to fear. We have all positive things right here. Nothing. And I'm not even saying all this is going to happen in our time. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet at all. But listen, Philadelphia thought all these things and they were going through all this stuff that we haven't even gone through. So I had the other churches. So why wouldn't we at least be ready, be watchful, be alert, no matter what's going on around you? Right? Maybe God has written on us. That means He possesses us. We are His. He owns us. Pillars of grace. And He says, and the name or see, the new Jerusalem, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. The name of new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. New Jerusalem tells where they're going to belong. The new name. He says, and my new name. My new name. His new name. He has a name that we don't know. There's a lot of things about Christ that we don't know. We have the whole Bible here about Christ. What is this to eternity? I mean, this is His Word. It's eternal. But we're going to learn so much more than what we know here. And we don't even know much of this. For eternity, we're going to continue to know more and more who He is. It'll never reach the apex. And we say, well, I know everything about it now. <laughs> we will just be beginning all the way on through. Wow, we're just in the womb right now. A new name. See, when we get glorified bodies, we will now see Him as He is. We will now know more about Him and who He is because with these eyes we can't see Him. But we'll physically see the glory of God. We will have our own glory that He has given us. And in eternity we're constantly going to be given fresh revelation of Christ. Age to age He will tell more and more of the exceeding riches of His grace. All of His kindness will be cast upon us constantly. The moment we see Him, His whole persona, everything about Him will take on an utterly new dimension. It's like, okay, we were born physically. Then we're born spiritually. But have you known He didn't leave you there? You've grown in Him, right? And so you know more and more. You just keep getting more excited, more excited. And But then all of a sudden, 
It's like when we're glorified, there is a whole dimension we, we can't even understand. We can't even, even imagine right now that all of a sudden we will get. We're going to learn a new name. By the way, you will have a new name. I'd love to know what it is. You will. Sometime soon. We see with the eyes of a redeemed body. Now, are you scared? You shouldn't be. He gave all the same kind of things to every one of these churches. Good or not so good. Here's what Philadelphia Church was though. They were faithful. They were true. They were holy. This should make us want to be faithful obedient and loyal to be lights of the world where there's going to be a dark winter. That's what we've been told. Have you heard that one? President-elect said it's going to be a dark winter. Boy, they've got a lot of joy coming, don't they? Boy, they, you know, doesn't that sound positive? The light of the world is amongst us. We're going to light it up, folks. We're going to light this dark winter up. It's not going to be dark to us. It's well lit. We see the truth. But it sure is dark out there, isn't it? Well, it should be. It has been dark. It's been dark ever since sin happened. But the light of Christ is within us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We're victorious. Stay faithful. Let's pray. Great God, thank You for the great encouragement. We have just seen a glimpse a little bit of what a perfect church looks like on this side of heaven. It's a glimpse. It's not perfect. It was made of sinners saved by grace. Lord, may we be like this Philadelphia church. May individuals be like that. May this church as a whole be like that. May we be ones here in Jeff City that are still carrying the torch when it's needed the most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.